Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where we attempt to determine the ultimate authority on dad jokes as SaaS founders engage in a head-to-head intense battle of puns and grown-worthy one-liners. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. Actually, I help B2B SaaS founders like you profitably scale from seven figures, which is good, to eight and nine figures, which is amazingly great. We use a proven process to create premium valuation, capital-efficient growth, and freedom so you build a business you're proud of and create a life of impact that you love. I've been reading a book recently called The Snowball about Warren Buffett, who I think is brilliant, not just because he makes a bunch of money, but it's the wisdom, the character, the wit, and his approach to life. You know, business and life aren't two different worlds, and they're, they're completely linked. And honestly, I don't think they are separate for anyone, but we can, can try and keep them that way sometimes. Uh, there's a lot of depth to this book, so it's not one that I'm just reading in two days and, and done with. But the thing I've really been noodling on has been uh, the people on the journey with us. And it's something I talk about all the time. My new book coming out uh, later this year, it's called The Captain's Keys, The Four People Every Successful Leader Needs. It's about a similar topic, very different angle. But the core concept is that we need people around us, right? Buffett talks about it in the sense that we need people better than us, and I 100% agree. Jim Rohn said that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. The idea is that the more we're around smarter, better, more talented people, that the way they think rubs off on us, and we get better. And generally, we choose friends that we are either like or that we want to become like. We're either growing and learning or sliding down the slope. I'm paraphrasing there. Those are my words, not his. But when we choose those who are better at something, the hope is that by being around them, we absorb some of the way that they think, uh, their philosophy of life, the habits that made them successful. And if we choose to hang out with whiners and complainers and gossips and those who think the world has just done them wrong, don't be surprised when that same toxic stuff starts coming out of you know, our own mouth, right? And don't even get me started on daytime TV or social media. As I think about mentors and specific people who make me better, I can think of a couple of recent categories, I'll say. I mean, for me, one category would be you know, contrarian. And in investment terms, it's someone who buys when everybody else is selling and sells when everybody else is buying. And in my case, it's more about just thinking differently. You know, the market says, this is how to become successful in that. And the contrarian says, nah, I'm going to do it this other way. They challenge best practices. They used to be a big fan of best practices. And, but the thing is that best practices are only that because someone hasn't figured out a better way. And that is the contrarian. And that's something that I want more of. I want to become more like that. I want to learn to think that way. When the market says, this is how you do it, you know, hmm, nah, I'm going to do it this way and invent a new best practice. Another place where I need help is emotional intelligence. Sometimes I do really good and other times I really suck at it. You know, two years of a pandemic certainly didn't help that either. You know, but I need people in my life who help me develop that. You know, I can watch and understand how they interact, how they deal with people, how they make decisions, and most importantly, how they think and process that information. So what is that for you? What gaps do you see? Where could you learn from someone better, smarter, and stronger? Drop me a note if that's something that you're committed to work on in 2023. Well, one of the ways I up-level myself is today's sponsor. Today's sponsor is Champion Leadership Group, the ultimate resource for SaaS founders and C-suite executives to accelerate capital-efficient growth. Unlock your business's potential by leveraging our time-tested SaaS growth toolkit, blueprints, and frameworks designed to scale your ARR from seven to eight to nine figures. Collaborate with an elite network of SaaS visionaries, celebrate wins, and overcome setbacks together. Prioritize strategic decisions to create profitable growth premium valuation, and freedom. Elevate your SaaS trajectory with Champion Leadership. Learn more at championleadership.com. Earlier this week, we talked with Michael Maximoff, co-founder of Folderly, a SaaS that keeps your emails out of spam so that your message gets to your ideal clients and prospects. 
brilliant, much needed solution in the marketplace today. And on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series last week, our guest was Michael Bertoni, founder and CEO of Philly Tech, now SaaS Talent. Michael brought great insights on how to find, hire, incentivize, and keep top talent. If you missed either one of those episodes, go back and give them a listen because they are absolute gold. My guest this week is Sam Malika Janan, CEO and co-founder of OneScreen.ai, the marketplace provider for buying and selling out-of-home advertising. Previously, he was chief revenue officer at Flock.com, where he helped the company expand in the U.S., which led to quintupling revenue, that's five times, 5x, was head of growth at HubSpot Labs and an instructor at Harvard University teaching advanced digital marketing, SaaS economics, and innovation management. I could go on and on, but it's time for you to hear from someone who is bringing digital advertising capabilities to the physical world. Sam, Malika Janan. Hey, Sam, welcome to SaaS Fuel. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, tell me a little bit about your background and uh, what you're doing now at OneScreen and where you started out at HubSpot. So I started at HubSpot uh, well over a decade ago, back before anybody actually knew what HubSpot was. Started out uh, building out our e-commerce vertical. So how can e-commerce uh, use inbound marketing? Things like abandoned cart nurturing were still kind of new. Uh, product detail page SEO was still kind of new. E-commerce was growing because it was just itself a good idea. After that, I led our expansion into Latin America, and then I ran HubSpot Labs. So our job was to figure out all the cool stuff. The mandate was literally, if you were a nerd living in your parents' basement going to MIT, how would you kill HubSpot? Figure that out, validate it, and incorporate it into the model before someone else does. So <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, then I taught at Harvard for a while, taught SaaS economics and innovation management and advanced uh, digital marketing. And then um, ended up at one screen. We started this company by accident. It was originally a hackathon to help small business owners make more money off of uh, during COVID off of reduced occupancy restrictions. The idea was, what if there was Google Display Network for the real world? That's where we hit on this whole like out of home advertising offline media thing that we had never thought about. I bought a billboard twice in my career, and once was just to piss off a competitor. But it's the only traditional ad medium still growing. It works. You can drive website visitation and website conversion, lead gen. It's not just brand awareness and but it's crazy fragmented. So we built the first ever data-driven marketplace for running campaigns offline the way we're used to running them online. I think there's a brilliant concept and you're right. I mean, online seems to be really, really crowded and, and it's hard to, to keep people's attention. And we forget about that there's a big world out there that is, is out there offline. So how did you come up with the idea of, of monetizing offline advertising using the, the same kind of data-driven processes that we would think of using online. It is crowded, right? Nerds like us have spent 20 years running experiments. Um, back in the mid 2000s, I got a cigar website to rank for the term health insurance because I was bored. Uh, you can't <laughs> do that anymore. Um, I was like the number nine CMO on Twitter, but that's because there were only 12 CMOs on Twitter. Uh, so, you know, it was, it was a different time, but there's the like, if you do what everyone else does, you'll get what everyone else gets. Right? Like our right. job is to be exploring new mediums. The internet, like you said, it's a party where everybody has shown up. It's very loud. It's highly over-optimized. Costs have gone up. You can't just buy your way out of the problem. But offline media doesn't have the data feedback loop. It's hard to make intelligent buying decisions and then opt analyze the effectiveness of the campaign and optimize it. The philosophy was, what if we created that kind of Facebook ads-like experience where you said, here's the audience I want to reach, the outcome I want to drive. And then made the purchase process not involve sending actual faxes, um, which is how the industry has worked over the right. past 200 years, and turn it into more of a, uh, you know, if you want to reach Elon Musk, you're not going to get him on Facebook ads, but there's only one billboard going into Kennedy Space Center because I live here. Uh, and so he has to drive past that once a month. So that was the idea is like take what had been all the tricks we've learned in a two dimensional context and apply it to a four-dimensional context. So having things around you, being part of somebody's actual literal buyer's journey, and then understanding the concept of time, what's going on in their life. Where are you based again? Dallas. That's right. I miss Dallas. Um, the joke I always use is there's a, a liquor store in Boston, though, that there are 3% of people who go to the liquor store and then go to work. Super interested to find out who they are. But in general, like think about time, that fourth dimension, if you want to get people to go to a liquor store, don't show them ads while they're on their way to work. That's been the journey so far is how do we first aggregate who owns what and where, 
that was not a thing. Um, then how do we help you go from the millions of places you could run ads down to the like dozens or hundreds of places that actually reach your target audience? Uh, and then how do we help you analyze the lift so that you can continue to grow your business in a that's way that's not just spending more money on Facebook and Google because it's not feasible anymore. Facebook and Google are absurdly expensive relative to what they were 10 years ago or right, right. just two years ago. And I think you've solved the problem then of the, the kind of the big two you know, hesitations for thinking about you know physical advertising is it's going to be for the masses. We can't really target and you've solved that. And the other is attribution. How do we know if it worked? And so how have you tackled those two problems? Yeah, so the, one of my favorite Jeff Bezos quotes is, we don't make money when we sell things. We make money when we help people make purchase decisions. That's the philosophy for the the planning. How do you help people know what to buy and where? Because you, you can buy the most impressions. But if you want to sell to people who work at HubSpot, instead of buying a ridiculously expensive billboard on I-95 and hoping you get some of the people who work at HubSpot, we can show you the roads that people people take to go to work and from work and where they eat and everything else using what's usually commercial real estate data. So the same data that like Starbucks would use to decide where to put a new coffee shop to reach coffee drinkers, we use to say uh, what you know place in the real world should you actually be to reach the type of person you're trying to reach, uh, which is not nobody who lives in Boston is actually going to take I-95 to get to work. And then from an analytics perspective, it depends on your goal. If you want to drive an increase in search volume, you want to make your Facebook ads work better by retargeting people, by seeming like a more credible brand, all the way down to like a pixel on your website, and then doing a lift. People who were exposed versus people who weren't exposed, did it have an increase on their probability to visit and convert? Turns out it does. Northeastern University is working on a great study on that to kind of objectively prove that. But then the key for performance marketers is we've got to have a chart that we can move up and to the right. So... You know, not just did it work, but what worked well, what worked better, and then every campaign you run should get better than the than the other campaign that you ran previously. That's what make that's what we what ruined Facebook and Google ads, and I'm sure 20 years from now somebody will be compl- complaining that we've ruined offline media because everybody's able to analyze and optimize their campaigns. Yeah, that's the dream, right? To make it where yeah. where you really dominate so much and become so effective that it becomes watered down because everybody does it. And then we'll have to think of a new thing. Maybe, hopefully not, but maybe the metaverse will be the, the next frontier in, <laughs> in marketing by that point. But the real be. world's quite big. There's, there's a lot you can do here as opposed to, it seems big, but the internet is quite small. The, the media contextual uh, environment, the amount of time we spend in the internet, um, there's a, that's a very small set of pixels that a lot of people, hundreds of billions of dollars are com- competing for. Uh, so you're really creating an unfair advantage to those that are, are ahead instead of you know, playing in that red ocean, which is online advertising. It's really that unfair advantage in the, the blue ocean outside. That's why startups love it uh, is, you know, you're not going to win. If you're a startup, your Facebook ads, your Google ads, you don't have a team that has spent years optimizing those channels. Uh, how are you going to reach the companies that you want to reach, the job titles that you want to reach, et cetera? You go to where the big incumbents you know, aren't already sophisticated because nobody's sophisticated because this has never been possible before. So it's it's an unfair advantage. It's also just a lot of fun. And this sounds weird, but it's the most fun I've had doing marketing since they invented social media. We've kind of ruined marketing by turning everybody into a spreadsheet jockey and you have to draw a dollar from a line from every dollar into every dollar out. Um, obviously the we've gotten as far as we can with that mentality and the truth of marketing is somewhere in between, right? Being able to have the context of what you're seeing and when you're seeing it be be part of the brand experience. Like I forget who it was. There was a, like a water conservation campaign somebody did that was like less is more. And so they had like a third of a billboard uh, and the rest was blank. Uh, or they had like half of a transit stop or a bus stop or something like that. So the context of the creative can be part of the experience you can wrap cars and drive them around the company you're trying to sell to. Uh, park an LED, tr- fly a drone formation in you know in front of the event you're trying to target. Like literally, the sky's the limit. So it's a lot of fun and also ROI positive, which is we needed marketers needed to be both things in order for us to like our profession. I think that's really interesting. Just the the creativity that is is outside, and you know who would have thought about you know flying drones? You know even just a, a couple of years ago. 
and uh, and what can be done there now is just amazing. Or being able to to physically target you know somebody else's big event, and uh, and you know a competitor's event, for example, or where all of your prospects are going to be, and and do that with physical media. Yeah, if I had known about Out of Home, um, our targeting of the Dreamforce conference would have been much more effective. We spent probably ten times as much money to get a tenth of the actual yield. Um, we did our own campaign targeting HubSpot's inbound event, ironically, because there's a lot of performance marketers that go there. And I, th- I think their team was somewhat annoyed with me because I spent far less than I would have spent as a marquee sponsor, but painted the entire Seaport District purple um, with <laughs> giant box trucks. And that got weird because they had like the Secret Service because they had like Obama as a speaker or something like that. And they didn't appreciate us trying, driving box trucks with SaveTheMarketers.com written on it around the, the venue. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but no, it was fun. It's, it's, it's a lot of bang for your buck. We had people holding projectors, projecting into the conference center. Like it's almost part of the problem is there's so much you can do that the first challenge is like figuring out like who you want to reach, what's the outcome you want to drive. And then once you understand how they're moving around an area, then you can say like, I want to have branded sandcastles at Miami tech week or, um, Somebody wanted to reach CFOs, and so we flew one of those planes over the U.S. Open. Uh, everybody's reachable, right, in the real world. Sure. Yeah, that's a great target market. Where are they going to be? And so you're, yeah. you're really doing something that is memorable, that's notable. Uh, yeah. I remember being out, that it was at the, the U.S. Open as well, seeing a plane fly by. And this is when the, uh, the, the Brad Favre, Tiger Woods whole thing was going on with the texting, and it was uh, a, a plane pulling a banner that said, uh, uh, hey, Brett, I feel your pain, text me, Tiger, and had a phone number. And so, I mean, who knows who that went to, but it was something that was memorable, and I'm sure there were lots of text messages that were, were going to that number just to find out, you know, what's the story there? And I think as marketers, that's what we want, is people to say, what's the story? Yeah, it's fun because you can create that kind of contextual relevance, you can reach people, you can create that mystery. Um, we had a brand called Hunt a Killer do something through the platform, which is apparently a date night um, game. Like you get clues in the mail and you solve the murder or whatever. They did a campaign in Austin called Who Killed Beth? Uh, they had, you know, bus wraps and things like that, but they also had body stencils on the ground. Um, in, in like you would at a crime scene. Uh, and I was kind of hoping that some reporter would pick up on it as like a true crime podcast crossover kind of thing. But it's, it's interesting because it's the only marketing medium where the ad itself is also content. So like if you look at T-Mobile's commercials, it's a lot of them showing pictures of their billboards as they drive across the United States as an expression of how they have like all this reach. Nobody's running TV commercials about their Facebook ads. The interesting thing about it is it's significantly cheaper than most people think it is. And so, you know, you and I were talking about how do you align with, you know, the financial objectives of your company? You've got to grow. We, we've, you know, that's kind of our mandate as marketers, as businesses, for the most part, we need to be growing, especially as SaaS companies where we've got a, a payback period and we've got to keep stacking revenue on, uh, you know, on top of pre, uh, pre-existing revenue. But you need to be able to do it in a way that is uh, CAC efficient and out of home is more CAC efficient, even in isolation. When you combine it with things like Facebook ads and Google ads, improves your, you know, your quality score for Google so it lowers your CPC because your you know quality scores higher, click through rates higher, makes your Facebook ads work better. All that stuff is great, but it works in isolation on its own. And so it's it's one of those things where it's it's hard to get the leadership team to buy in to doing it the first time. But if you can get them to do an experiment, then they get addicted to it. And you know we've got cool companies, you know Amplitude and companies that I've used to being a customer of and a fan of, um, who are like, how do we reach? You know, an audience that has designed itself to not be reachable. Like, remember, marketing is one of the few professions where there's a whole industry designed to stop us from doing our jobs. Ad blockers and like DVRs and things like that. No, no one else really has that. And can you not only reach the people you want to reach, but do it, like you said, in a fun way that creates a moment of delight that, you know, is a little bit beyond just my mother-in-law reading every billboard as we drive down the highway, uh, although that's a thing too. Um, how do you make it tell a story? Like Bucky's is a, you know, Bucky's. If you're yeah, in, I do. Uh, yeah, Boston right Texas. here in Texas. Love them. Love, 
love their billboards. I have absolutely no idea what data they're using to decide where they put their billboards. But the way they tell a story as you get closer and closer, like the number one stop for number two, for those listening, they have very famous bathrooms. Um, (laughs) They do. Like that is uh, just not something you're going to be able to create a creative experience around using, you know, television, right? They're not on the, on the road. Uh, and, you know, Facebook ads, et cetera, you're not going to be able to do that. So I love the ability to, to create a story, to surround people with an experience. It's, um, yeah, it's fun. People like me ruin the profession of marketing. Uh, and, but we've got to keep that ROI centric, right? We're driving business value, uh, aspect of our jobs if we want to keep our jobs anyways, but we still also have to find like new channels of growth. And ironically, it's not direct mail. It's not, you know, radio or all these other traditional ad mediums that are still dying uh out of home is the only traditional ad medium that's been growing it's never stopped growing but it's because there's no alternative podcasts can replace you know uh radio and ctv can replace linear television uh i don't know who reads physical mail anymore um my wife lets me know if it's a a bill or something like that but um everybody experiences the, the world around them so it's a lot of fun, but it was, it was a big challenge because the it's, it's one of those things like we're used to internet MarTech has 10,700 some odd companies, I think in the last uh, chief MarTech landscape, sure. uh, offline media has 69 on the Loomis wow. game, if you count Verizon and the people who are in every category. So only time in my career, I wish we had more competitors because there would be fewer problems that we had to solve. But uh, it's been a lot of fun to see marketers who find innovative ways to do things too, like being able to build something with your customers, like using census data. Um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has, you know, uh, job title concentration data, being able to be like, that's cool. We had a customer do that just manually. Now we ingested that into our platform and you have job title targeting. So that's the great thing about marketers these days is kind of like inbound marketing 10, 15 years ago. We never thought we knew all, what all the tricks were going to be. Uh, but if we gave people the tools, the marketers will figure out like what the tricks are, um, which is which is fun. It's a lot of fun to do iteratively. Yeah, yeah, it's very collaborative as well. Being able to to source those ideas and and how they're using it, it may not be exactly how you thought they would. Yeah, when Google invested in HubSpot, they threatened to tattoo like we are not the user on the inside of our eyelids. Um, they didn't. HR wouldn't let them. But like that is very much something. You know, it's it's a balance with with any platform that you're building is um, giving people the tools they need to do smart things, but also giving them the the guardrails, the bumpers, like when you're playing bowling to make sure they don't mess up. We we had a relatively major company wanting to promote their podcast and they wanted to do taxi toppers in New York City. And there's a great company with very sophisticated taxi toppers in New York City. But it is the smallest ad unit in America's most distracting city, and you have a down funnel objective, right? Like it's a literally a new context. When we ran our our Boston campaign, I thought the creative was bad because the, I thought they saved the marketers.com URL was too small, but they reminded me that it's an 18 foot tall box truck and the letters are actually a foot and a half high, and the people are on the sidewalk maybe 10 feet away. So it's literally a different context that we have to think about uh, as marketers, which you know, like that's something it's easy to make things powerful. It's hard to make powerful things easy to use. That's, you know, what this year is all about for us on our product roadmap is how do we let people do all the cool things we haven't thought of while still being like, if you have a downfall objective, you should probably not, ju- at least not just use taxi toppers in New York City. You should combine it with some other things. Right. Right. I like that, that it's not an either or, but it's a both and. Yeah. It's it's like cooking, right? It's like I cooked last night and, uh, you know, some steak recipe that I found online uh, for my family. And there's creativity that you can have in cooking. There's things you can add, like I substituted some ingredients for others. But they also, in the recipe, had in very big letters, garlic in butter will burn very fast. So do this quickly, <laughs> right? So like you could use garlic in butter uh, as your sauce that you're putting on it. But I needed that warning because uh, I burned the garlic, Jeff. But the small mistakes. Yeah, yeah. You'd always do that again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, as you've built something that really didn't exist before, how have you tackled the, the challenges of there, there really not being a, a path to follow? You're, you're really creating what you're doing from the, the ground up. 
Yeah, for all those listening, being a category creator sounds great in theory. In practice, it's a lot of stress. It's almost more challenging because, you know, 15 years ago, we had to explain what a search engine was before we sold you SEO software. With offline media, one, people already think they know what it is. They think it's billboards, et cetera. They think Lamar, Clear Channel, Outfront own all of it. They don't. They combined the top 10 own less than 10%. And they think they know what it's for, which is like marketers with more budget than brains or people who are just doing, you know, brand activation, not, you know, necessarily people who are trying to drive a specific outcome, like an app download or an e-commerce transaction, et cetera. So that's our biggest challenge is even people like me, like have an existing bias about a category, which is harder to overcome than something that's new. Like it's easier to, to sell you on the metaverse, despite it being a terrible idea where there's a hundred movies about why it's a bad idea, but all the investors and marketers like went super into that because there was no kind of cognitive blocker preventing them from being like, oh, this is what the metaverse is and I already think about it. So that's our biggest challenge is how do we get people to think about, like look around and think about the world around them, think about the things that they see, the things that they experience and think about that as as a meaningful marketing medium that they should explore, um, especially when it's so overwhelming, right? Like the LED trucks are... The sandcastles, you can sponsor little league teams through the platform. One person wanted to sponsor the little league team of their CE, of their biggest competitor's CEO. So that CEO would have to put on like their shirt, uh, every week. <laughs> I love um, that. It's amazing. Like they ended up, uh, at Miami Tech Week doing a uh, floating billboards that floated around all the parties and like the, the private yacht of all that, uh, their competitors, like main customers and such. So. It creates an amazing, like, asymmetric advantage uh, for companies that are, ironically, like smaller. If you're if you're a challenger brand, there's a lot of great research on this. Out of home builds credibility. It makes you feel more real. Anybody can run Facebook ads, uh, and on a dollar cost basis, it's significantly more affordable than just trying to outbid and out optimize people who have been running Google and Facebook ads campaigns for a decade. That makes a lot of sense. Is there a specific objective that works better? for out-of-home advertising? As you mentioned, like, you know, the app download or podcast download versus, you know, some of the others, brand awareness. You know, what's the the best use of it? It's definitely good at what people think it's good at, which is driving brand awareness, driving credibility and authority. Um, If you're an account-based marketer, uh, if you... I really want somebody to do an LED truck and park it in front of their target office with a video that says, this is Jim. He's going to call you next Tuesday you know, at 2 p.m. If that doesn't work, go to reschedulegym.com. There are ways that you can do that. It works really well for conference takeovers, account-based marketing B2B. I was actually shocked by how good it is at driving website visitation. Um, hmm. Interesting. Like I said, Northeastern University's data science program is eventually going to publish their study on this, but I'll, I'll spoil the lead for you there, which is that it can with statistical significance, rejecting the null hypothesis, drive website visitation, conversions, and transactions. So it's not just a top of the funnel, you know, brand awareness or drive an increase in Google search volume kind of thing. You can get people to go to a website and take an action. That's why, like, I loved the savethemarketers.com thing that we did. One, it was that good positioning. Um, but two, it let me track it with like a, a HubSpot tracking link and something like 1600. People like typed in that specific URL from the event that, that we were targeting. Wow, that's really good. Yeah, which was, you know, surprising to me, right? Like, I, ironically, given that I run this company, um, we're, I'm very data-driven like everybody else. Uh, and I expected that it would take multiple impressions in a long period of time. It, it doesn't. You can do really smart out-of-home campaigns that are like highly targeted. Again, like the Elon Musk billboard that I always talk about where there's only one road in Kennedy Space Center. He's got to drive past it. That billboard is, I think, $450 a month. I kind of want to just buy it uh, and say, like, hi, Elon. Um, <laughs> please stop charging me $8 a month for, to be verified. But um, no, if you're a B2B, if you're ABM or you're doing conferences, it's a no-brainer. If you're a CPG, you're doing retail, you want to drive sales, it's a no-brainer. But I think for the people who are feeling the most pain are the people who, a lot of the SaaS companies, who need to get people to visit a website to take an action, to explore something they hadn't thought about before. Like I really want, so in, in Boston, the mass transit system is literally called inbound and outbound. Those are the two directions. Uh, and I really wanted the HubSpot team. They've moved away from inbound marketing as their positioning, but I wanted them to like 
brand the inbound train as like, this is inbound. And then the outbound train, just have it be like super obnoxious. <laughs> you know, great. Like, to get people to think about, okay, what is this inbound marketing thing? Which now everybody knows, but 15 years ago, nobody had thought about. No, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's, it is creating experiences. It's that curiosity gap of say the marketers like, well, what's that all about? Yeah. And so they, 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 this, they want to be part of the, the story and understand, you know, we, we want to make that connection. Yeah. It's, it's always fun. I've spent most of my career, ironically, being a marketer, marketing to marketers about marketing. So I have an email going out tomorrow that says, I know that you know that I know that you opened the email, but didn't click the link, uh, which is a trick I've used <laughs> before and it always works well. That's really uh, funny. But like the whole point of that email is this is actually an old school trick, knowing that you opened the email and didn't click. Like we want to show you the new tricks. It's fun because we get to do the marketing. We get to experiment with it ourselves. And then we also learn from our customers. Like I hadn't thought of out of home as an ABM channel until we had these enterprise SaaS companies be like, wait, you can tell us the roads that people take to go, who, who go work at, you know, Clavio or, or Salesforce or something like that. What, what if we put billboards on those roads? And now my team's like, that's a really good idea. Uh, we're going to sell out of home to people, right? Like they wouldn't be talking to our sales reps unless they had, you know, seen our campaign. It's not, our brand's not that big yet. So it was just like, uh, not to keep talking about my previous relationship, but at HubSpot, when people would convert on an ebook or a webinar, they'd talk to our sales reps. They had a very hard time saying ebooks don't work because our sales reps would be like, how do you think you're talking to me? <laughs> That's great. And yeah. they've been really big into that for a long time. And the, the content produced is, is high quality. So I think that makes a yeah. difference too. The, and that's, that's what it always is, right? Like somebody ran an experiment and uh, I won't name the brand, but they, they're like, oh, we tried it and it didn't work. And I'm like, no, you tried a stupid plan. So obviously it didn't work. Um, but then also like the creative is really, really important. Uh, arguably more so than on the internet where you've got this kind of like reflexive click. You've got like a very confined, constrained experience. Um, it requires a level of creativity. Frankly, I don't possess uh, it's why we also have like creative agencies and services in the marketplace uh, is because don't ask my team to help you with the creative. Um, but the, you know, like we, we had somebody who was marketing to nurses and they had like blood vomit sweat or something was their campaign, which I guess is <laughs> really something that nurses really relate to. Uh, not something necessarily that, that the rest of us relate to. Right. Um, and and that's a, a context that as you're leaving your job at a hospital or something else like that, you're like, oh, I should really sign up for this app that's going to get me better shifts somewhere. Like it, it really like grabs your attention. So again, what makes it fun is the creative aspect of it. And then what makes it fun for me is we wouldn't be doing this if we thought we were putting some, some dying medium on life support. Like it actually does work. Um, and I shouldn't sound so surprised, but again, remember that this started as a hackathon to help small business owners. Like, what if you could have, you know, TV screens that had targeted ads inside spaces? What if people could control that data? What if your like barbershop, what if Facebook and Google weren't the most powerful marketing mediums, but like my barbershop in Boston was or my favorite cigar lounge or something? Like those screens are smart because I care about them. That I think, not that this is the question you asked, but that I think is the next frontier is um, people being able to use and control the way their data is monetized in a way to have an impact on the real world around them that they actually care about. Like, I don't care if, if the Facebook ads are smarter and they make more money, right? But if sharing my data lets, you know, my favorite cocktail bar make more money because they know I'm there and who's the last sales rep to try and reach out to me, Cloudflare, uh, you know, knows that I'm there and they're willing to pay a ton of money because they know that I'm there, right? And that helps my cocktail bar make more money. I'm okay with that. So I think that is going to be the next evolution as we think about like data privacy and Consumer data is, you know, out of home lets you control how the data that you're generating every day is used and monetized and like sponsoring the little league teams or like my high school, uh, or one of the high schools near where I live is where all like the NASA employees and stuff go. Like United Launch Alliance and Boeing and stuff should be sponsoring them, not like the local dry cleaner. The, all the ads on, on the, uh, on the field. And that school should be making $20,000 a month more than they are right now. So 
I think that that's the thing that I really love about it too, is, you know, this, the majority of inventory is owned by small businesses. Um, even when you think about regular billboards, most of them are owned by small businesses. Um, and that's something I don't think most of us care about our data being used to make those companies more money. We do care about our data being used to make Google, Facebook, TikTok, you know, et cetera, make more money. So that's the, that's, I think going to be the next evolution is the, I don't know, it's almost a fifth dimension is like, there's the three dimensions of the experience we're having, the fourth dimension of what's happening with us, and then another dimension of how much do I actually care about giving this place where I'm having an experience, uh, you know, a new dimension of economics where they can monetize the fact that I'm there. Yeah, you know, starting to see more and more of that, but there's no centralized hub. So it's really interesting to to hear you talk about that. So whether it's you know advertising on tables or you know in in the the Bucky's famous restrooms where you've got the, the ads that are above the, the urinals and things like that are on the back of stall doors. I mean, but there's no you know central place to go and say, Hey, you know, I want to buy these ads here because I know that my target market is going to be at those places. You know, I know that yeah. they eat at this restaurant. So I want my ad on the, the table. And your target market has a positive af- affinity towards that place, right? right. Like it, the ad hits differently when you know that, you know, this ad is, helping restaurants stay in business or, you know, helping a small business owner or something like that. Um, Bucky's isn't a small business anymore. Uh, right. I guess outside of Texas, most people haven't heard of it. If you're listening, it's essentially if Disney world and Seven Eleven had a baby. I, that's I pretty know. close. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't make sense until you go there. Um, but you know, heck like I wouldn't mind if the, ads in the Bucky stalls were super smart and they made more money because, because I was there because then they can get even more variations of jer- beef jerky on the 20 foot tall jerky. There you go. That yeah, that, that's a, that's a good argument for sharing data right there. Which I think is, you know, we, we've spent 20 years collecting people's data nominally with their consent in that they click, I have read and agreed to the terms and conditions that nobody actually reads and agrees right. to. Um, and people are creating a unit of economic value that's being monetized without their knowledge or consent. If I just took money out of your wallet, even if you weren't planning on using it and used it for my own purposes, you'd be pretty mad at me. Um, sure. And we're, we're seeing the same thing uh, when it comes to data. Now, I think the danger is that if marketers and companies don't start to lean into that trend and creatively, you know, create a reason for people to share their data with you that, governments, their general reflex is like just nobody can use any data. And I think that is a mistake as well because it's value destructive, right? Like there is economic value, right. billions, hundreds of billions of dollars in economic value based on you know the data that we all create every day. And just saying like all of that economic value is gone, I think is an overreaction that will lead to like a less good future world than um, if we give people the ability to say like I want my data to be used to create economic value in these certain ways. Like it's not minority report, right? Like that's creepy. Um, my first right. webinar for the industry was, uh, why is out of home always portrayed by sci-fi as a dystopian hellhole? So like Blade Runner, minority report, et cetera. Right. right. Um, and it's because people generally don't trust that marketers are going to do responsible things with the tools at our disposal and they are going to find ways to block us. So I think, Ethically sourced consumer data uh, and the ability to use that, you get better data from people, more more rich data from company. There's a company called Reclaim, um, which has opt-in data where they actually pay people to share their data. Um, I think that is really the future of all marketing, and that's I think what has companies like Google and Facebook and such worried is I have no real incentive to want to share my data with them or to let them use my data to make themselves more money. Um, I barely have control, right? Like they have controls over what data you can share, but most people don't understand them. So uh, I think their phone's listening to them. The truth is actually creepier, which is that you're sharing so much data that their AI is actually that good, that they can guess what you're going to buy before you buy it. So if you don't want that to be the case, um, you know, then I think marketers need to be thinking about how we use data in other ways, how we get people to opt into sharing data with us because it creates value for them. Just like, the whole concept of inbound marketing, it's going to be the same thing with how we create experiences in the real world. Right. 
And that's interesting too. The people that there are even you know government control where they there is no data sharing where if, you know if it's all locked and you can't use any data that doesn't create a great experience for us as consumers either, because there are things that that we want or things that that would be helpful. We're going to see ads no matter what, but uh, seeing them about things that we care about or in places that we are that that makes sense seems to be a much better solution than just random stuff for everybody. I mean, we've all been on the highway and been very relieved when we saw something that said there's a rest stop up ahead, right? right. Like, uh, <laughs> hey, I needed that right now. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> like, it's not, it's ads aren't inherently bad because products aren't inherently bad, right? right. If they were, none of us would be here. Um, it's the way in which we try and insert uh, products into the consideration cycle of consumers that I think has broken. We're getting way too deep here, but like broken, like the social contract that we're supposed to have with consumers. Um, and it's annoying, right? Like if Seinfeld was a TV show today, although there's a great Twitter account called Seinfeld of today, something like that. Um, but like there's that episode about, you know, the telemarketers, uh, like, Oh, I'll call you when you get home. And then he hangs up. Uh, like it's such a, a bad experience that it doesn't actually. Yes, if you do it enough, eventually you will make money if you cold call enough, if you spam enough, whatever. But it's not as cost efficient as just creating a media experience, whether it's content marketing online or whether it's creating billboards that make people think, uh, like the water conservation uh, stuff that I was talking about, or things that just make people go, wow, like the drone. If you've seen the drone formations um, that like they can spell out QR codes and stuff like that, and people take pictures of them, like that's. We have one one customer who's like a Forbes 30 under 30 CEO, and his mom commented on his LinkedIn post about their first billboard about how proud she was. And I was a little offended because I'm like, I've been in marketing for you know 20 plus years and spent over a hundred million dollars on internet ads. My mother has yet to say anything about how proud she is of my Google ads campaigns. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, we had drones, you know, I've seen them you know at different events, Fourth of July, New Year's. You know, lots of different displays. State Fair had some big displays, so that's really becoming much more mainstream. And you know, so we're we're seeing those, but it's still certainly fascinating. You know, it's yeah. kind of the difference between just the the normal TV ads that people will will DVR and skip versus Super Bowl ads. There's something special about that. We actually watch some people just watch it for the ads, but those are ones that we don't want to skip. So there's there's definitely you know a difference in the way that value is perceived or the, the quality of the, the story. And I think that's one of the big shifts is we've been spoiled for so long being able to have like a one-to-one -one context and a very fast feedback loop on data uh, versus, you know, brand marketing, which has almost gotten a bad rap of, you know, broadcast, just reach as many people as possible and hope that you're reaching the right people. That's why connected television is growing insanely fast while linear TV dies is, the technology and media experience is the same. It's just better organized data and infrastructure. You don't have to buy all of New York City to reach Hoboken, New Jersey. There's a happy medium in between of like, we're just going to spend money. We know half of it's wasted. We just don't know which half versus, you know, I want, you know, time decay, linear attribution or whatever for my Facebook ad view through clicks, et cetera. Like there's, uh, there's that happy medium, which is why, you know, we're not physicists. It's, it's a social science. It's an art and a, and a, and a data science that's combined. So that's what makes economics fun, right? Otherwise I would go be a, either a day trader or a physicist of some kind. Spreadsheets are, are great, right? But like spreadsheets and data and numbers tell the story of groups of people and how they, how they behave. It's not meant to be like coin operated business growth. Because if it was that easy, everybody would do it, which is why the internet is no longer the uh, the growth hack that it used to be. Right, right. Well, where can people learn more about you and about OneScreen online? Uh, you can go to OneScreen.ai. Um, pro tip for all the other startups, come up with a brand name where you can get the .com because otherwise you have to say .ai all the time. Um, uh, or two, you can find me on Twitter, on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to talk. I love... I love just getting people into the platform, seeing their ideas, seeing the questions that they ask, the ideas that they come up with. And uh, if you Google anything even close to my name, I'll show up because, you know, much like being a CMO on Twitter in 2008, uh, the com was not taken when I registered it uh, back in the day. <laughs> so. 
That's great. And we'll make sure and link your, your profile and, uh, and all your social contacts uh, in the show notes as well. Sam, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. My pleasure. My, my final note for everybody else out there, go talk to your CFO. Like you and I were talking about this before the show. Like your relationship with your finance team should not be adversarial. Um, it should be based on like our ability to efficiently drive business growth uh, in, in a way that everybody can feel confident about. Uh, and so odds are your CFO has heard me on a podcast before you have, because I am kind of like an, an economics oriented marketer. Um, so that's another way to reach me. Go ask your CFO and see if they've heard me on a podcast on like ramp.com's podcast or something like that. And then, uh, then you can have a great conversation with them about, uh, growth marketing and why you shouldn't just keep spending more money on Facebook while your company goes out of business. That's a great, great thing. I hope people like, it, it's also true, right? Like it's my, my class I taught at Harvard and such was mostly nerds. Uh, you know, it was people who were doing CAC analysis and things like that. Um, and marketers, do some of that, but they don't do, they don't think about it holistically enough. Um, they want to, they want to think about it in terms of specific channels. The CFO doesn't care about Facebook versus Google versus out of home, et cetera. They care about for the capital allocated to go to market is the capital efficiency. Like, does it, does it make sense? Right. So the, your CMO might be a bigger pain in your butt about like, where are you spending money and can you draw a dotted line to it? Your CFO is like, I don't care. Like here's your, you know, $4 million budget. What's the capital efficiency yield that you can get out of it? So I think more people should be best friends with their CFO and it'll make it much easier to convince CEOs to do things. That makes a lot of sense. And you're right. It, it's, it's about the return and capital efficiency. It doesn't, the, the channel is, is really irrelevant. It's, it's all about the return. Yep. So, you know, exactly. can you get a better return one place or another? Then go get that return, whatever the, the medium is. And this is why CFOs are better marketers than CEOs. It's because <laughs> they don't get obsessed on like, oh, everybody's doing the metaverse. Should we do the metaverse? Should we be TikToking? Like, don't, stop. Don't do that. Right. Like CMOs with the creativity and CFOs with the like, you know, the responsibility that they have to be efficient with the capital that they've been entrusted with. That's like, I think better than chasing. Everybody's worried about missing out on the next big trend. Um, I think that is very short-sighted uh, and not actually what your stakeholders and shareholders care about. That's really, really good. Why we did this is, you know, again, I, I've spent so much time on so many experiments done. There's only so much that you can do when everybody else knows what you know and is doing all the things that you're doing. Um, especially when you're not a large company that can just buy its way out of the problem by consuming cash at a faster rate than other companies. If you're a startup, if you're a challenger brand, like you've got to find some ways to fight in a medium where you have that, as you call it, unfair advantage. That's what I've found so fun about this is, yeah, you know, Coca-Cola does out of home. Sure. That's great. And if Coca-Cola wants to use our platform, feel free, but I'm much more interested in like, who was it? There was some like spiked tequila thing that was actually better than it sounded. Or this somebody, uh, Halo makes a coffee that's actually hydrating, right? Like those people, they're never going to beat Coca-Cola going toe to toe, even on Facebook, Instagram, everything else like that, because you're just not going to be companies that have had that kind of time to optimize and that can frankly just run at a capital efficiency that's negative until you're out of business and they can buy you for pennies on the dollar. It's something that the people who should think about it the most are the ones who think about it the least because it to them feels like a larger unknown than just like, I launched my startup, I do a product hunt launch, I do Facebook ads, I do retargeting ads, I do Google AdWords, and then they run out of money because everybody else is doing the exact same thing. SaaS is fun because it's unlike e-commerce where you have to, you know, or a lot of businesses where you, you kind of have to like work within the, the profit margins that you have. SaaS, because it inherently has lifetime value as a, as a component, you can lose more money than the first person pays you in their first month to acquire them. I wish I had been a, like a, a fly on the wall in the room when like Salesforce was first pitching like the no software thing to their investors. And they're like, we're going to spend 20 times the average subscription to acquire a customer. But trust us, they're still going to be around at month 21 <laughs> and we're going to profit after that. Like we take that for granted. But it creates the, the fact that you have that kind of like elasticity in your acquisition costs means that you have the ability to be creative. You can take risks. You can make mistakes. When you're working in e-commerce, it's a bit of a challenge, right? You've got 15% margins or 20% margins or, or less. Um, 
and it's a race to the bottom because of all these shopping aggregators like Google and Amazon, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and it inhibits your ability to be creative. So that's why I love talking to, to SaaS audiences is um, they have really meaningful competitors, but they also have the ability to have a acquisition cost increase by 15% and not have it destroy their unit economics, which means that they can actually run experiments, do things where nobody knows the right answer. Like I don't pretend I know all the right answers on how to do an out-of-home campaign, but I can give you the platform so that you can make your mistakes and the next one you do will get better and better and better. That's why SaaS is fun. I, I don't think I would take a job that uh, you know limited marketing's creativity so much because you have to work within such razor thin margins. That completely makes sense. Well, I really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. I really did enjoy it. Yeah, I did as well. Looking forward to uh, if anybody has any questions or if there are follow-ons too. Um, you know, I'm happy to to talk to folks. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for having me. Thanks again, Sam, for coming on the show and sharing your journey insights and innovative approach. You can learn more about Sam in one screen at onescreen.ai. When I met Sam, I thought it was such a great idea and opportunity to connect with ideal prospects in different ways and in a very unique way, I think. You know, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sassfuel.com. If you're getting value from the show, please subscribe or follow us. I really appreciate it. And it's always a boost for the team to let them know that you like what we're doing. Everyone who subscribes this week will get a mobile AI assistant app that offers questionable life advice and a constant stream of puns to brighten your day. Yeah, it's as useful as the GPS navigation app that the Mandalorian uses. I asked him what it was and he said, this is the ways. Join us next Tuesday where our SaaS founder is Brandon Metcalf, a multi-time founder, multiple exits, and current CEO of Place Technology. Place is a SaaS built for SaaS leaders to align their operations with financial data to better navigate growth. We all need that right now. Next Thursday on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series, we talk with Ryan Rood, founder and CEO of Lake One. Lake One teams up with B2B brands to build and optimize revenue systems by developing laser-focused strategies to reach their buyers and align sales and marketing stacks. Huge value ahead. See you next time. And as always, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sassfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.